All right. Hello? Is this working? Yes? Cool. Awesome. All right. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be up here uh, before y'all tonight. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Anthony Bigani, and uh, I'm one of the interns on staff here. Actually, I'm not feeling very well tonight, and I've debated making this, like, bad joke where I'm like, 1997 Michael Jordan, the flu game, and he goes out and like crushes it even though he's sick, but I'm not, I'm not Michael Jordan, so don't expect that. <laughs> and Brian, Brian talked about this a little. I hate bringing this up, but I really do want to thank y'all uh, before going uh, out of here tonight. Um, just so I don't start crying in front of y'all, uh, I'll make it brief, but these honestly have been two of the most formative years of my life uh, thus far. And uh, even if I don't know you, thank you. Um, Mississippi State will always hold a dear spot close to my heart. And uh, I just, I love my job. And uh, y'all play a big part in that. So thank you. Um, well, now that that's out of the way, uh, let's get started. So this semester, Brian has been taking us through the Ten Commandments, showing us week after week uh, <clears throat> that God actually has designed us in such a way that when acknowledged brings flourishing and the beautiful life we were made for. Um, but when disregarded, dysfunction and chaos characterize our life and our relationships. Tonight is the Eighth Commandment, which prohibits us from stealing. A command I think most of us believe we grasped early on in life. It didn't take us long for us to start using the word mine in our vocabulary, often loosely staking claim to anything and everything we desired at the moment, and then ferociously defending that possession if someone tried to take it away from us. Sometimes we might even appeal to higher authorities like adults to reclaim that property. And you, like me, are very aware of what is yours and do not enjoy the thought of these things being stolen from you. I want to encourage you all that this notion of possessions and ownership is actually something instilled in us by God, by a God who also has possessions that he cares for deeply and will protect with his life. However, don't think we also won't see how we distort this command for our own gain. So tonight we're going to be looking at the beauty of generosity, and I want to touch on these three things, what God prohibits, what God provides, and what God possesses. Please turn with me to Exodus 20 for tonight's reading of God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not steal. Jesus tells us uh, that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, uh, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Please, please pray with me that this would become a reality tonight. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you um, that you are generous. I thank you uh, not only for your law, but also for the Eighth Commandment that you... Um, uh, really care uh, about what you have given to us, uh, what you have entrusted to us, and you also uh, care uh, enough that um, you send your son for us. Um, I thank you for that generosity. I pray that that would be real to us tonight uh, and that we would leave here praising your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So you shall not steal. It sounds pretty straightforward, right? As we walk through each of these commandments this semester, week after week, hopefully you've begun to see that the law is much more pervasive than most of us normally think, while at the same time his grace is greater than we could have ever hoped for. <clears throat> this week should be no different. And so first we're going to look at what God is prohibiting in this commandment. As I thought about what I wanted to share with you all tonight about what, what God prohibits here, I came to two conclusions. First, this command covers so much more than I would like to admit. As John Calvin puts it, the Eighth Commandment prohibits whatever device is used to grow rich at another's expense, and when others are manipulated for your own gain. 
So stealing is any time you grow rich at another's expense, or any time you manipulate someone for your own gain. That can be monetarily, or maybe even intellectually or relationally. And with this definition in mind, then stealing is no longer just taking possessions of others by the use of force, by breaking into their house and looting all that they have. It also entails fraud and malice. It entails lying about who you are or about what you've done. Or, about, or it involves tearing down someone else all in order to profit at their expense. It includes the use of flattery or deception to take advantage of people and situations to benefit yourself. Stealing, as one commentator put it, is the desire to get as much as possible while giving as little as possible. It is being a taker without being a giver. <clears throat> I hope you begin to see, just like I did, that the Eighth Commandment is just like the other seven commands we've already covered this semester. It's a command that should cause us to look up and see a great divide between the lives that we live and the life that God calls beautiful. So let's think about what this might look like. What a relationship looks like when you are primarily a taker rather than a giver. What comes to mind when thinking about such a person is, is that they are what I would call possessive. And, and y'all know all too well the many negative implications of such a description. Someone who we call possessive tries to control your time, acting as if he or she owns it and can dictate how you spend it. They try to control your affections, demanding that they belong solely to them, and they complain or get upset when you are not meeting their needs. They might act as if they own your body, assuming it is theirs for their own pleasure or service. A possessive person might have their hands in every aspect of your life, determining who, where, and why you invest yourself in anything other than them and what they deem is appropriate. You've maybe had friends with possessive dating partners who've controlled and manipulated them. Or maybe you've been confronted with this reality in yourself and how you relate to people. Chances are, unfortunately, we've probably been both the victim and the perpetrator at some time in our life. And what I'm describing here, this, this possessiveness, is actually stealing relationally. It's being a taker without being a giver. And so that was my first conclusion, that the words do not steal actually cover a lot more than we might have originally thought. That a life characterized by taking is what God is prohibiting here. The second conclusion I came to is that I could far too easily stand up here and talk for 30 minutes about just that. About the countless ways we break this command. That list I just went through was not exhaustive. And should I try and give you such a list, I think you, you would not only be beat down and bruised by, by the weight of it all, but I also don't think I would use, be using my time before you wisely. I think in a real sense I would be stealing from you by insisting that this command is primarily interested in the various different forms of theft we participate in and then encouraging you to leave here no longer doing them. By not forcing us to ask why, I would be withholding something that I think the Lord cares about deeply, which is why do we steal? Why are we so good at being takers? Why is it that we continually ask what you can do for me and not what I can do for you? In other words, what kind of heart lies behind the fact that we consistently desire to take things that do not belong to us in order to profit in some way? Some might say greed, which I wouldn't argue with. There's a real sense in which we are hungry for more than we have, so we take it. But I suggest that ultimately we take because we are scared and empty, because our hearts are full of fear. It's not that we do not have, but it's that we do not trust God's provision. We do not believe God has our best interests in mind and will provide what we need. When Jesus says in Matthew 6, 26, that we are more valuable to the Father than the birds and therefore do not need to fear his provision for our lives, we either disbelieve and steal or hoard our possessions to make up for this, making up for this emptiness we feel, 
or we're scared and full of fear that his provision doesn't include giving us X, Y, or Z, which we think are these essential things that we need in our life, so we steal to provide it for ourselves. We take what presently gives us the feeling of security and fullness. We, like the possessive person, are takers because we are incredibly afraid of not having those possessions we view to be most valuable. You see, it's fear that leads us to steal. It's fear that makes you a taker in so many areas of your life. It's fear that drives you to cheat, to exploit others. It's fear that fuels this unhealthy and destructive behavior of taking as much as possible while only giving little. Let's think about this for a second. Why do we cheat in our classes? Why do we present others' work as our own or take credit for our classmates' labor and group projects? Why do we find every way to get the best grade as possible, the best future job as possible, the best you fill in the blank as possible, while also doing the least amount of work demanded of us, maybe even stealing others' labor, time, gifts, and resources in order to obtain it? Can you see the underlying fear beneath these whys? We might fear failing or fear doing worse than others. Or here's a big one, fear missing out on life outside of school. Or fear what our futures might look like. So then we steal to prevent those outcomes. Or what about in relationships? Why might we use and exploit others relationally? Why do I, myself, use others to increase my social status? Or to make me feel better? Why do I control and manipulate my friends into doing what I want? What's at the heart behind all this taking? Behind growing my own prosperity at the expense of others? Again, it's fear. It's fear of not fitting in, fear of being an outcast, fear of not being wanted or significant or even useful. I hope this begins to resonate with you. I hope you'll see that the Eighth Commandment actually exposes just how much we'd rather take than give, and that we are then in return sowing discord in our relationships by living in conflict with how we were designed to relate to God and one another. That living as a taker is the result of a scared and empty heart that fails to see God's provision in our lives as a good thing. A heart that's fear distorts the very nature of God and how he relates to us. Having said that, I also hope that y'all see, y'all see that, that this command, far from just simply restricting us from taking that which does not belong to us, it actually forbids these things because they take away from the beautiful life. That this command is actually a reflection of God's character. That God, being the creator and sustainer of all things, does not steal. In fact, he gives generously, abundantly, and without discrimination. Which brings me to my second point, what God provides. If stealing, if stealing is what the Eighth Commandment is prohibiting, then giving and giving generously is what the command positively requires. Instead of being takers, we are givers. Instead of exploiting others for your own gain, we seek their welfare. Instead of you for me, we are commanded to thank me for you. Ephesians 4.28 reads, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let's look closer at what this is and isn't saying. It is not saying all those who do not have jobs or who are in need are sinning. It doesn't say stop accepting charity and get a job and just provide for yourself. It actually can't say that because if it did, then that whole final clause would not make sense. It's assuming, just like Jesus did, that there will always be the poor among us, that there will always be others who we can help and give generously to. So what this text is actually commanding is that we stop stealing, and instead those who are able should work doing honest labor rather than the dishonest labor of stealing. And what I think is very interesting is the reason behind why we are told to work. 
You see, this command is not primarily concerned with you working to provide for yourself, to make money and be independent, although those are good things. But rather, if God has promised his provision over our lives and told us not to worry about food or drink or clothes, then we actually do not have to fear anything. We really can have confidence that the Lord is in control and will provide for us. Therefore, we work so that we can give, so that we can give generously to others. The word Paul uses here for work means to labor to the point of fatigue. Paul is saying we should work to provide for those in need with such zeal that we're actually exhausted because of it. That the beautiful life, the fulfillment of our labors, results in giving to others. And let's be honest, this is, this is not the way the rest of the world functions. This isn't how we operate in college. This isn't how the business world operates. This isn't how we we work in our government. But Paul is saying that we don't work in order to possess or have or provide anything for ourselves, but that a Christian should work and work tirelessly in order to give others possessions and provide for their needs. That giving to others generously and then in return trusting in the Lord's provision for their own lives is the beautiful life. And a lot of us, myself included, may listen to what I'm saying and think, Yeah, that's a generally good principle, but ultimately it falls short of changing my behavior in the long run. That is unless I was no longer the most important thing in my life anymore. Let me try and explain. We talked talked about being a a taker relationally, about being possessive. But what, what would it look like to be a giver relationally? Well, I think there are a lot of ways to illustrate this, but one of the easiest is through romantic relationships. So I'm going to tell you about how my best friend in college changed and changed dramatically because he began to reorient his love around a person other than himself. When I first met Sam, uh, he reminded me of a character out of The Little Rascals. Is that like past y'all's? You know, you know that? There's, there's, he, he could have been the president of their club, the He-Man Woman Haters. They were just these little boys who were afraid of cooties. And, and they had to take this oath, and they say, I solemnly swear to be a He-Man and hate women and not play with them or talk to them unless I have to, and especially never fall in love. And if I do, may I die slowly and painfully and, and suffer for hours or until I scream bloody murder. And, and this is funny because it's obviously an exaggeration, and my friend did not, in fact, hate women, but he couldn't have been more disinterested. He spent all his time fishing or getting into trouble or wrestling, and really he'd only been interested in a girl one time because her dad just so happened to have a really nice fishing boat. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm serious. But then he met Jessica, and things began to change. He began to give up certain liberties he once valued so that he could be with her. He began to give her his time, his attention, his money, his love, because he saw her to be valuable, very valuable in fact. He began to give and continues to give to her to the point of fatigue because she is now his wife and also the mother of his soon-to-be child. And about three years ago, he made a decision to forsake all others for her sake, for her well-being and provision. Now we are called to give like this not only to those we hope to one day marry, but also to our roommates, our family members, the poor and the outcast, and even those we cannot stand. We are to be generous with our time, helping the classmate with his work, although it comes easy to you and is costing you time with your friends or studying for yourself. We are called to be generous with our resources, giving to those who don't have or who are in need, even though you're in college and you don't have a lot and you don't have a lot of money or any possessions to your name. We're called to be generous uh, with our attitudes towards outsiders, welcoming them in to our circles and making them feel included and wanted, even though they might be awkward, or even though you'd rather enjoy the company of your friends instead. 
We're called to give, well, because that is what God does and that is how we flourish. Think about how giving God is. God is at his core giving. He's loving, sharing with us his creation, sharing with us many blessings and gifts, and most importantly, sharing with us his son, whom he gave for us to possess. For those who believe in Christ, we actually possess Christ as an inheritance. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says that when we hear the word of truth and believe in him, we are then sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. When we believe in Christ, we actually acquire a new possession, a new possession of much greater value than anything we have ever owned before. And our possession of this inheritance is actually sealed with the Holy Spirit. It says the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The word guarantee can also be read as down payment. And a down payment is not just a promise of future payment, although it does imply that. A down payment is some sort of present-day compensation. It's actual capital or goods that not only assure you of the promised compensation that's coming in full, but it also allows you to experience that future reality right away. Think about a wedding engagement. What is going on when he asks her to marry him? He puts a ring on her finger. It's a down payment, so to speak, communicating the future reality that they will be married. There is a future reality, a future inheritance that is hers. But she also has something tangible in the present that points to and allows her to experience a little bit of what it will be like. He gives her a ring, usually at significant expense to his savings account, that is the first installment of what will one day be hers, namely himself. Then they begin to relate to one another differently, not working as hard to get the other to like them because they know they already love each other. So instead, they begin to love the other because they simply enjoy bringing them pleasure. This all happens because the guaranteed future reality that is shaping their present lives is what they're focusing on. This, this inheritance is removing the fear because the prized possession is no longer in question. And this is what God provides for us. And the Holy Spirit allows us to taste a little bit of what it will be like to one day acquire that possession in full. Our inheritance, Jesus Christ. And what it looks like to experience that future reality now is the freedom and desire to give our many possessions, resources, and gifts to others in need without fear. Because we actually possess something much greater than these. That means we can give part of our income, however small, to those in need without fearing our own financial security because we have that security in Jesus. That means we can give our time to others knowing that it might cost us that A or it might cost us that night out with friends because we're no longer allowing the fear of, of diminished educational success or social status to be our driving force because we are now operating with the future knowledge of our inheritance to come. This is an inheritance that is made certain through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit which calms our fears because it reminds us that God will not only provide for us, but that he actually will not even withhold from us his only son. Our inheritance in Christ, this possession, I would suggest will begin to change the way we relate to our neighbors. It'll begin to replace the fear that prevents us from the generosity that God calls us to, and instead creates in us a posture that asks, how can I give and bring good to you? But how does this happen? How do we begin to see Jesus as this invaluable possession that causes us to stop stealing, to no longer fear his provision, and instead give out of love for him and his people? It sounds attractive, but it also sounds impossible. What am I to do if I just don't see the value? 
We don't just choose to find something value, uh, valuable. Value actually, actually captures our hearts. And what I'm going to suggest is that this is exactly the way Jesus views his bride, the church. That before you could possess him, he actually came to acquire you. To make you heirs of his inheritance. To purchase you for all eternity. This next point, what God possesses, actually is the beginning to real and lasting heart change for thieves like us. I've been trying to show you tonight why God cares so much about you stealing. That God forbids us from being takers and not givers. That our hearts, empty and scared, full of fear, look to find provision apart from God. And what God is calling us to do instead of stealing is to be generous and self-giving. A generosity that's in response to the incredible inheritance we have in Jesus Christ that is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit as a down payment. A free gift of grace that reorients our loves, rids us of fear, and enables us to let go of our possessions to seek the betterment and welfare of those around us. The important thing about an inheritance, though, is that it's not really something you can earn. You're an heir to an inheritance when the owner declares you to be so. Which is why if you're a Christian, it's important to know that you don't just possess Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ also possesses you. And he doesn't just possess you as an inheritance, gaining something only given to him. He actually chose you. He chose the church to be a people for his own possession. You at one point were not a people, but Christ 2,000 years Uh, 2,000 years ago came that he might have you. He might purchase you with his blood so that he might possess for himself something he viewed to be of great value. And the Lord, as should have been made clearer for you through this commandment, is adamant that we do not steal possessions. That ownership of something brings along the right for it to be protected from thieves and can only be given away by its rightful owner. And for those who belong to Jesus, for those who were bought by the Most High King, Jesus says no one will snatch them out of my hands. That once you are purchased, you are bound to him, and he will not stop collecting until the multitude that no man can number, the multitude he purchased on the cross, are finally brought into his possession. There's a parable Jesus tells us in Matthew 13 about a pearl of great value. This is actually on your seats. It says, uh, this is Jesus speaking, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had and bought it. What do y'all think Jesus was referring to when he said this? I think the most direct interpretation of this parable was essentially my second point. That the kingdom of heaven, our inheritance in Christ, is something so valuable that we, when finding it, should be compelled to give all that we have in order to obtain it. That Jesus really is a pearl of great value. He's a possession like nothing else we currently own. But Jesus also says that he is the fulfillment of the scriptures. That all of God's word points to him. And in order, to cha- in order for change to take place, in order for our hearts to be captivated by this pearl, I think we need, need to begin to see what it would look like for Jesus to be the main character in this story. What I'd like to highlight is who is doing the searching and who is doing the purchasing here. Who initiates this transaction? Again, it is a merchant who is in search of fine pearls. And when he finds one that he likes, he buys it. We see elsewhere in the Bible that no one seeks God, and also that Christ, our inheritance, is a free gift, not something we purchase with money or good works or behaviors. So what if this merchant is actually Jesus? That Jesus, who by his very nature had everything, went out searching for something of value, and then when he found it, he gave up everything, everything in order to have it. Will you see yourself as the pearl of great value? 
Will you see that the kingdom of heaven is made up of people, people like you and me, that are of such value that Jesus saw it worth his while to forsake everything, to, to, to purchase it? If you will see this, if you will see yourself as having such value, such worth, that the Father would send his Son to purchase you, and that the Son would gladly lay aside his possessions for your sake, that will begin to change the fearful heart. It just has to. 1 John 4.18 declares, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And that we can only have this love because Jesus first loved us. It isn't because we saw something as priceless and had to have it, but because Jesus did. It's always been us responding to God's love. And we are promised that we actually come to know and believe the love that God has for us. That coming to know and believe in the love of Jesus actually changes us. Knowing that this is who you are in the eyes of the one who has everything begins to cast out fears. It gives us a heart that cannot help but be generous because of the great love we have been shown and a great Savior that calls us his. And so we not only grow in our love for God, seeing the real beauty of our inheritance, but we grow in love for our neighbors and we protect their property and seek to prosper them, proclaiming with our actions and words the reality of the cross and what is true for those in Christ in hopes that they too may share in the blessings of the gospel, in the inheritance that is Jesus Christ. So this is the hope we have. As thieves taking all that we can get our hands on and giving as little in return. As crooks that manipulate and cheat others in order to prosper at their expense. Our hope is that God, out of his generosity, and that Jesus, out of his overflowing love for us, secured the payment for our release from the bondage of sin and gifted us with the inheritance of eternal life in his presence. He poured out the Holy Spirit on us to remind us that we cannot lose this possession and that God will not have this possession stolen from him, which then begins loosening our grips on the things that we do have, the things we hold most dearly, and instead we begin, begin imitating the amazing love and generosity of our Savior. I'll end with a quote from Michael Horton communicating this good news for us, for those who have never once kept the Eighth Commandment a day in their lives. This is the reality we celebrated almost a week ago on Good Friday. Listen to how Horton reminds us that the man crucified next to Jesus was a thief, and let his love of thieves actually cast out any fear. He says, We see our sinless Lord crucified for thieves, not unlike the one hanging next to him. Here was one person who never took what did not belong to him and who fulfilled all his obligations and debts he did not owe. And yet he hangs here next to a common thief, bearing his shame and guilt before God as though he had committed the crime. The thief crucified next to our Lord may have experienced the wrath of Rome that dark Friday afternoon, but because of the crucifixion of a man just feet from him, he would not have to endure the wrath of heaven. All thieves who trust in Christ can expect to hear those same words on their deathbed from the spotless lamb. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. Please pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, I, uh, I just pray that uh, we would leave here uh, knowing more your grace, uh, knowing more uh, your love for us, that you came uh, for us. Um, let that, that reality change us. Um, let it change our fearful hearts uh, into hearts that are secure uh, in your love for us uh, and that in return uh, become generous uh, to our neighbors. Um, I just thank you for this opportunity and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for one last time.
Somebody hit the light.